I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Let's talk for a minute about yeast and beer. I think that we've all witnessed the growing craft beer scene over the last decade, and I know a lot of us are incorporating these beers into our beverage programs. And if you're like me, you're drinking them all the time. (laughs) But when you get into the details, talking about lagers and ales is a lot more complex than it seems on the surface. So the easy definition that everybody regurgitates is that ales are made with top fermenting yeasts and lagers are made with bottom fermenting yeasts. But distinguishing between these two is a lot more complex than that. So before Belgian lagers came on the scene in the 1400s, essentially all beers were ales. And the split in genre occurred before we really understood what yeasts were. It occurred before Louis Pasteur did all his work with yeasts. And brewers didn't know that yeast was microscopically behind the phenomenon of bottom fermenting lagers and top fermenting ales. All that they really knew was that suddenly they could ferment at lower temperatures for longer periods of time. And today we know this is because a different species of yeast traveled to Europe and began to be used in beer production. And this yeast most likely originated in Patagonia, of all places, where it had a symbiotic relationship with sugary tree galls. Now this is actually pretty interesting. So imagine you're in Patagonia and all of these beech trees are all around you, and these trees actually produce these um, bulbous things that grow on them, and they're actually full of sugar. And these local yeasts, their official Latin name is Pastorianus, so these local Pastorianus yeasts attach themselves to the galls, eat them, they actually ferment and can be eaten as food. Um, And um, if you think about it, lagers came to be in the 1400s, right around the time when ship exploration to the Americas was gearing up into full swing. So it makes sense that these ships that are going back and forth across the Atlantic brought with them other yeast species to Europe. Yeasts are pretty cool beings. They are the first domesticated microorganism. So ancient brewers, and by ancient I'm talking thousands of years ago in the Fertile Crescent, they would grow reliant on their particular mash basket because a well-used basket would jumpstart a better fermentation than a new basket. And today we know this is because of yeast populations, and they would have built up in the fibers to jumpstart fermentation. But back then, they attributed it to supernatural powers. So just imagine you're sitting around in the Fertile Crescent, you have some barley in your thing and you want to make some beer and you just wait for it to happen, but it doesn't because you have a new basket and you don't have yeast populations built up. 
And then some, somebody comes along, this brewer, and they say, I have a magic basket, and I can turn your porridge into beer. And, uh, and then they do it, and it works. You must have really thought that beer making was an incredible thing. Today, of course, we know, oh, it's yeasts. So local yeast populations um, are actually really beginning to be understood in wineries. And, and the wine industry, the global wine industry, is jumpstarting a lot of yeast research. There's some great yeast research going on in Auckland right now and plenty of other um, at UC Davis as well. Uh, lots of winemakers who use natural fermentation or spontaneous fermentations, they're finding ways to encourage yeast populations in their vineyards and in their wineries. And it always comes up whenever we talk about organic wines. Um, people don't want to spray in the vineyards because they don't want to kill the natural yeast that are on the grapes. Um, and then a lot of other people think that that when you get a spontaneous fermentation, it's because of high yeast populations in your winery. And I've, I've found when I talk to winemakers that they're split into two different factions. Some people think, you know, it's essential to encourage these yeasts in the vineyard. And then other people think that spontaneous fermentation is actually just having um, a lot of yeast in your cellar. But let's get back to the genesis of lagers. So because Pastorianus could thrive at lower temperatures, it became possible to ferment beer in cold caves. And the process in the cold is slower, so the fermentation is less violent. And without this bubbling, yeast cells will stay at the bottom of the tank rather than kind of ride that froth up towards the top. And brewers noticed this, and they noticed there wasn't much action at the top of their wort. But uh, they did notice a bit of action happening at the bottom. So the fermentation took a lot longer, and the beer sat in a cold cave for quite a while before it was ready to be served. And from a brewer's perspective, the product rested in the cave for quite a long time. So they created a new terminology for this different kind of beer, um, and they called it lager, which means to lay down. Furthermore, because this, these lagered beers seemed to work on the bottom of the vat, they became known as bottom fermenting beers, while all other beers began to be known as top fermenting. And this terminology abounds today, and it's confusing because it doesn't actually refer to the species of yeast. It just refers to where the fermentation happens, which is really a function of temperature. So ultimately, once it became clear that a new kind of beer was being produced in Bavaria, brewers saw it fit to distinguish it from other products. So they'd call bottom fermenting beers lager and top fermenting beers ales. And this is where it gets really confusing because lager references two separate and not necessarily tandem things. It represents beer that's fermented with this new yeast species, and it also represents resting a beer in the cold. So beer making went on for thousands of years without comprehension of these yeasts until things really began to change in 1860 when yeast was first observed under the microscope. When we first saw yeast under a microscope, nobody postulated that yeasts were alive. Yeast had been sold commercially for bread making since as early as the late 1700s, but it wasn't until Louis Pasteur published a book on fermentation in the 1850s that yeast's role in the alcoholic fermentation was really defined for a large audience. Now, because lager terminology was coined before yeasts were fully understood, the beer-making world finds itself in kind of a sticky situation. Because now, some brewers use the word lager to mean beer made with the Pastorianus yeast species. Others use the word lager to mean beer that has been cold-rested. And others use the word lager when the beer has been made with the yeast species and when it has been cold-rested. So the confusion about what a lager is just kept getting worse and worse until the last half century when it just became the most confusing thing of all. In the mid to late 1900s, big beer companies make and continue to make ultra inexpensive product by using a large percentage of rice in their mash. And they cold stabilize the brew in large tanks 
And because of this cold resting, they call it lager. These beers have flooded our markets, and public perception of what a lager is has completely changed from what it used to be hundreds of years ago. So nowadays, people making old-style lagers actually have to distinguish on their labels Belgian-style lager. Otherwise, people get confused. To me, it's kind of wild that the word lager is such a mysterious term. It's been thrown around so often with so many different types of beer that its meaning has almost been lost. And craft brewers are working on this. Lots of brewers are starting to label exact ingredients and production methods uh, right on the front of their labels so that drinkers can have a better idea of what they're getting into. And I think that the more clear the beer labeling becomes, the easier it will be for us to, to find a beer that's in line with our tastes. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Bruce Anderson on the show of The Wine Spectator. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Libby. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So you're Canadian, which I didn't know until recently. Yes, that's true. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. I moved to New York in 1990. So, I mean, what was the wine scene like in, in Ontario? Were, were you from a young age drinking wine or what was it like? I have to give my dad credit. Uh, he put wine on the table uh, when I was a fairly young, at a fairly young age, I mean, 14, 15. And I think, uh, you know, he thought that it would enhance our dining experience. Uh, I believe the wine in question was Ruby Rouge from Niagara Peninsula, which uh, was right next door to where I grew up. And, um, you know, despite the fact it wasn't great wine, but I think that the whole idea of, you know, having wine with food, um, you know, kind of piqued my interest and, and I just thought, you know, this is, this is great. And, and how did that interest evolve over time? I mean, what was your introduction to kind of more fine wine? How did that come up? Well, it, it did occur over a number of years. Um, I, I worked part-time at the uh, Liquor Control Board of Ontario, um, you know, holidays when I was in high school and then a little later when I was in college. So, you know, I was exposed to a little bit of wine there and, uh, you know, actually bought a few bottles and, you know, kept them around the house so that I, I had something if we wanted to open for dinner. Were you of age at that time? Were you like 18 or were you uh, like yeah, 16, actually, like working at the liquor board? Like, Well, yeah. I was uh, the first the first stint there. Yeah, I think I was about 15 or 16. Uh, but uh, when, yeah, once I was in college, then uh, 
yeah, I was I was of age. And how's the work at the liquor control board? Like people come in and say, do you have this wine? And you say, no. <laughs> like, is that how it like, works? No. Well, in, in actual fact, at, at that time, um, it was still pretty antiquated. You would come in and there would just be a, a room with, uh, with listings on a board. And you would take a piece of paper and you would put down the code and you would go to the cashier and pay for it. And then the cashier would give me the slip and I would find the bottles in the back. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really old school. Yeah, you know. bag them up for the customer. That's like going to the New York Public Library and like filling out one of those call slips, and they're That's like, right. "We'll get back to you with this book tomorrow." And you're like, yeah. "Tomorrow? <laughs> like, what do you yeah. physically have to do to find this book?" Well, you know, it was, uh, um, you know, it was it was a uh, legacy of prohibition and you know, liquor control board. I mean, they really uh, they really did control uh, the consumption. And uh, you know, when my parents were first married, they had a book and. You know, they kept track of what you bought. So, you know, it had, it had evolved somewhat from that. But it was still uh, several years yet before, you know, they, they got rid of those uh, display boards and they, you know, they just put everything out on, on racks and, and gave you a shopping cart and uh, you could go around and choose your own. So was there a prohibition in Canada? I'm really uh, ignorant of that. Yes. Um, it, it, I'm trying to think of the, the exact years. It started a little bit earlier than it did in the U.S., uh, but it ended considerably earlier, too, in the, in, the, in the mid to late 20s. Canadians always seem like a sensible people to me. Like, you know, like, this is ridiculous. What are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's legalize this again. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was a good idea. But then, of course, you know, all the provinces were set up with the, uh, the control and sale of alcohol. And so what got you out of Ontario, you know, and, and into the bigger world? I mean, what happened to, to make your move? Well, I, I guess the, the, you know, the first uh, opportunity was when I went to university and, you know, I moved away from my parents' house and uh, I, I went nearby University of Waterloo in Kitchener-Waterloo and, uh, and then later uh, to grad school at Queen's University in Kingston. Oh, okay. And, and it was, um, it was actually, um, uh, while I was at grad school and I, I, you know, got the bug to, to do something different. And, uh, uh, I decided to, to move to Australia for a short time, well, for a semester and do some research there. And so that, you know, that was kind of the first big trip I'd taken. Um, I, up until then I didn't even have a passport. But it's probably easier for Canadians to go to Australia than than other, you know, because it's still legacy of the British Empire, right? Or no? Is that not true? Uh, I believe, yes, it was at the time. Uh, all, they were all, all part of the, the Commonwealth. And, uh, but it was also, uh, the reason I, I got there was because my thesis advisor had a colleague at the University of New South Wales. So it made a lot of sense to go there. Uh, he offered me a couple of places. And in fact, one of them was, uh, was New York because he had a colleague at Princeton. And so he suggested maybe doing something, some research on, uh, on New York, but, you know, Australia sounded a little more exotic. And what were you studying at that time? I studied urban economic geography. So it was land use and, and, uh, you know, some, uh, urban planning, but more the theory behind it, uh, rather than the actual regulations. So that probably led into a lot of maps, a lot of maps. Um, and, uh, on my 21st birthday, a friend gave me, uh, Hugh Johnson's world Atlas of wine, which has great maps, you know, and that was again, you know, part of that development of my interest in wine. 
Because there's probably less books around back then. I mean, what year are we talking about? Here? Yeah, uh, 1977. Yeah, so that's the year I was born. Yeah. <laughs> Just to put it into... <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I think that might have even been the first edition of uh, the World Atlas of Wine, and I think they're now on the fifth edition. Um, and, and when I went to Australia, it was 1980. So... Um, you know, and I was, I was there for three months. I was, I had a work visa, so I had a couple of part-time jobs and one of them was, uh, selling clothing. And, um, and then, you know, this guy came in one day and he had a company and he was hiring out, uh, administrative assistants for traveling businessmen. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this sh shoot, you know, and I need a, like a, got an older businessman. I need like a younger businessman. And, you know, the, the scenario is you're having a lunch meeting. So I said, great. Uh, so we went and we did the shoot at a restaurant and like a photo shoot. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we were sitting around and had a little bit of lunch and opened some wine and, and then, you know, he paid me and I thought, wow, this is great. Yeah. Uh, good work you know, if you can get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so when I, when I went back to Ontario, uh, I started doing a little bit of modeling there. I, I had a girlfriend because you're a handsome guy, I should say. <laughs> Thank you. You know, the George Clooney of the the wine business. I've called you more than once. Thank you. Well, if uh, if you know the acting had uh, paid out a little bit more, like uh, George Clooney, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might have never been in the wine business. You'd be writing from your Lake Garda home, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I, I I knew some guys that uh, through um, a former girlfriend that had a menswear shop. So I did a little bit of modeling for them. And then I moved to Toronto when I, when I, uh, finished my, my grad work and, um, you know, there was the recession of, uh, 81, 82, and, uh, you could literally see dro uh, jobs dry up, you know, in the, the, the classified section. Uh, so, and, and, you know, it wasn't, uh, the prospects weren't that great. And I mean, I was applying for just about anything, you know, jobs in the Northwest territories, uh, out in Alberta, um. So, you know, I, I, I started working, um, in a bar basically, uh, you know, uh, serving beer and, uh, and then I started modeling as well, you know, to, to, to make ends meet. And, um, uh, you know, that, that started to pay off and, and, you know, I got a little bit of work and then in, um, 1984, uh, I decided I wanted to, to try it in, um, in Europe, um, uh, you know, some of my friends had had done some work in germany and my agent had a connection with an agent in germany so in october of 84 i found myself uh in hamburg and uh, you know started started working there and ended up staying there uh for eight months uh on the first trip and then w once i came back to toronto um uh, you know the work the work picked up because i had it you know i had a better portfolio i had some more experience and, uh, you know, the, the photographers and the, the, um, companies in Toronto were, were very impressed, you know, that, uh, if you had worked abroad and, uh, so, and I, you know, I did, I did a lot of things, um, uh, you know, to make a living at it. Most, most, uh, most of the guys at the time, uh, all, you know, we all had to work part-time as well, uh, much as, as actors do here. Sure. Um, but I, I was very lucky I did, you know, like six TV commercials right off the bat. So I got my actor card and I had some residual checks coming in. And, uh, um, you know, I did, I did all, all the, 
all the mall runway shows, spring and fall. I did some hand modeling. So, you know, between all those things and the photography and the TV, I was able to make a living at it full time. And, uh, and I did that, um, uh, well, until we moved to New York, I did it mostly in Toronto, but a little bit in Western New York, uh, in Chicago, uh, you know, at the, in Europe, I went back to Europe a couple of times after that, uh, worked in Germany and in, in, uh, in Paris. And, um, and then my, uh, my ex-wife, uh, is a makeup artist and she, we met on a shoot and she, um, moved to Toronto after we got married and, and, uh, uh, she became uh, quite successful in Toronto and she grew up in Buffalo and being American, she wanted to try New York. And, you know, we had, we were able to do that. We were able to move here. And, um, cause those are jobs you can translate to different markets. Like yes. you're, you're not stuck in one place. Exactly. You know, if you don't want to be. Exactly. And, and, you know, her being American and us being married allowed me to live and work here. Um, so, she uh, she's still a makeup artist to this day and did very well. I was very successful at it. Um, after three years, uh, I realized that uh, you know it wasn't going to work out the way that I had hoped. Uh, New York is a very difficult market, and it's a very different market than any other market I'd worked in. And uh, I got involved in the wine business part time, and you know I had been interested in wine, and that that interest uh, had really kind of grown into a passion. And, um, you know, I decided that this was a good time to make a move. I, I loved wine. I was already working in the business. Uh, I found I loved it even more. Uh, you know, I was a little concerned at first that, you know, okay, once I start working in the business, um, you know, I'm going to become a little jaded. I'm not going to enjoy it as much, but that wasn't the case. So that encouraged me to, uh, you know, to, to look for something full time. So what was the first job that you did with wine? Like directly Burgundy wine company. And that's the place uh, in the Chelsea uh, Soho. Yes. And yeah. So how did that come about? Uh, at the time, they were located on West 11th in the West Village. And uh, uh, we had had a dinner one night at Morichet and uh, drunk this terrific uh, Macon Vire from Andre Bonhomme. And, uh, you know, so I said, well, you know, can, where can you buy this wine? And they said, well, I think the only place it's available is this little shop in the West Village called Burgundy Wine Company. So one night uh, I walked over there and um, uh, the store was closed, but I really liked the look of it and the feel of it. And uh, so a few days later, I, I went over and I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm, I'd love to uh, get involved in the wine business. And, uh, you know, if you guys need any help, um, let me know. I, I, I'd like to work for you. And they said, well, we're, you know, we're pretty small, so um, I don't think we need anybody right now. You know, we have uh, two full-time people uh, and then one part-time person. And then, you know, we got a, a guy who helps out when we make deliveries one, one day a week. But uh, a couple of days later, they called me up uh, and um, they said, well, you know, we could use some help if you want to come in. And, you know, uh, that led to eventually working there three or four days a week. And, you know, I was still modeling and acting at the time and they were, uh, kind enough to allow me to go on, uh, on, uh, um, additions and, uh, uh, you know, calls. So, uh, so, you know, I was doing both and, but it also, uh, it, well, it, first of all, it, it, it exposed, 
it, it exposed me to Burgundy for the first time. Uh, and that's, you know, where I started my, my knowledge uh, on Burgundy. And, um, and it also gave me access to the trade tastings. Oh, okay. So you're getting to try a lot of stuff. Because yeah. you could go in and say, hey, I work for a Burgundy wine company, and they let you in, and then there's, you know, tables with tons of wine on it. Exactly. And so that was probably pretty cool. It was excellent. I mean, I, you know, I was like a kid in a candy shop. You can imagine growing up in Ontario where, you know, you don't have such a great selection and, uh, the, you know, the wines that you're going to taste or, or uh, drink are basically those that you've bought and opened yourself. Uh, you know, there were some, I had some friends who, um, you know, were mentors and they, they had some, they had been buying wine for some time and they had, you know, sellers and, uh, you know, we would get together and, and, you know, they would open some nice things, but, um, but again, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to taste widely. Uh, and all of a sudden I found myself, uh, with that opportunity. And, and what was it like working at the Burgundy Wine Company? I mean, who was there and what were they like? Uh, it was great. Um, you know, for someone just starting in the wine business, um, it was pretty low key. Al Hotchkin owned it. And, uh, um, you know, he had this, uh, it was a relatively interesting model at the time where we had a, a mailing list and, and, um, you know, we would, he would buy wines and then we would pitch them to our clients. And, uh, you know, this was long before the internet. And so, you know, we were faxing stuff <laughs> and <laughs> you're like, hold on for the telex where you're like putting right. the phone into the modem thing. And they're like, you hear the note, yeah. beep, 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 beep. Like, our, our, our newsletter was, uh, it was typed out, uh, you know, and then, and there were, there were newsletters, uh, like about once a month with, uh, different offerings. Uh, so they were, they were typed up and we actually mailed them. And I can remember, uh, so Al Hodgkin was there, Jerry Tashton and Jerry, Jerry really ran the office and, uh, and Brian Flanagan and, uh, you know, at the oh, end, Brian Flanagan. Yeah. I really like Brian. Nice guy. And in fact, Brian's still there now working with Jerry. Yeah. He uh, sold me a bottle of, uh, old Ponzi Pinot Noir ones, like from the eighties. Wow. I, I went in and I was, he was like, I got something for you. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> good. So we would, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, literally at the end of the day, we would go around the neighborhood and stuff the, the post boxes with, with these envelopes selling, you know, uh, mailing out our offerings. Wow. And, and the thing is we had, we had to do it, you know, we had to kind of spread it around the neighborhood because we actually got in trouble f- with the post office because we would, we would, we would stuff a mailbox full and, uh, you know, so they, they got after us for that. And, um, so, uh, so Al was there and Jerry was there and, uh, you know, Al would go uh, a couple times a year, he'd go on his buying trips to Burgundy, uh, usually once in the spring and once in the fall. And, uh, it was great. You know, I, I was, uh, I was working in the cellar and, you know, we would receive shipments and we would put the wines away and we would, you know, fill orders cause we were either shipping stuff or we were delivering it around town. And, uh, but every day, you know, we, we would stop for lunch and, and Jerry had this hot plate and it was a tiny store uh, and she would cook lunch on this hot plate and Al would bring up a couple bottles from the cellar and, you know, he'd, he'd blind them and, and we'd taste and talk about them and, uh, and it was great. You know, it, it, it really, uh, it really had kind of more of a European feel, uh, the work environment, I would say, than, than uh, an American feel, uh, you know, it was it was small and casual, and there was a lot of discussion about wine. We'd, we'd clear off Al's desk, put a tablecloth down, and you know, all sit around and have lunch and 
talk about the wines and uh, and yeah, it was it was you know a big part of my early education. And so, what happened next? I mean, you were there, getting more into wine, doing some trade tastings, and then you uh, took some other jobs too, or how did it work out? I did. Um, in fact, I, I started at Burgundy Wine Company in uh, October of uh, 1990, and um, n- uh, maybe a month or so after that, uh, Al went down and did a tasting at Windows on the World, and he came back and he said, uh, you know, they're looking for someone part-time if you're interested, uh, you know, be a couple nights a week, and, and uh, I said, yeah, great. You know, I'd heard about the program, and I'd heard about Kevin Zraeli, and... Um, I thought, you know, th- this is good. You know, it's uh, another little bit of income coming in and, and, and more wine knowledge. Uh, so I started working there in January 91. And uh, I worked there two years. I, I left um, in December of 92. And, um, you know, that was, again, something different from the retail environment. I was in a restaurant environment um, for the first six months. Uh, I was in this little office with... Uh, you know, wines in cold boxes and the waiters would come in and I'd give them the wines. And, and that office was also adjacent to the cellar in the sky. And that was where they did, um, you know, the, the five, six course, seven course, uh, wine dinners with, with pairings with each course. So there were always great wines open. And, uh, one of the first things I would do when I, when I came to work, it was about, I guess, five o'clock or four thirty or so. Uh, I would have to decant a bottle of port for the cellar in the sky. And at the time, we were serving uh, 70 grams. Uh, so this was in 91. And, um, you know, I always remember that, uh, you know, I would decant the port and then I would take a little bit of cheesecloth and I would pour the rest through the cheesecloth. And that gave me a little taste. So at the end of the night, I'd have a taste of, of 70 grams uh, for the end of my shift. Have you had that wine again recently? Uh, in fact, uh, I have. It's always fun when you yeah. have a, like a, a pivotal wine like that, and then you yes. try it several years later. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the Grams though. It was. Uh, it was a seventy. Um, it was a Quinta de Noval. Oh, okay. But I always, you know, I, I have fond memories of that year, that vintage. That's a good one. Yeah, I like so seventy Taylor's pretty yeah. classic. You know, taste. So. Uh, I mean, what was the sommelier world like? Uh, you know, who did you see coming through? I mean, was Andrea Amir there at that time, or what was that? No, I, I think uh, Andrea had worked for Kevin uh, and the wine school um, prior to that, and uh, but then she had left. Uh, I don't remember exactly what she was doing at that time, but I, I knew Andrea, and um, uh, she subsequently returned uh, after I had left and and was working uh, was actually doing the wine program and up until uh, they closed in uh, uh, after after uh, February '93. Um, but it was uh, you know I, I I don't I don't remember a lot of famous people coming through there. Uh, it was a it was a big space to cover. Um, you know there were there were about. Uh, I mean, we would we would do. I think there were something like three hundred covers in there, and uh, you know, so it was a lot of room to to from one end to the other. And we also were responsible for banquets too. So some, you know, if there was a banquet going on, some we had to go down to the next floor and check on that. And uh, so it was a, it was a big place, uh, you know, with with the cellar in the sky being the kind of the uh, 
you know, the, the, the prime area, and that was small and, you know, in a glassed-in room uh, were bottles all around. And, uh, um, you know, that was sort of the, the you know, the, the, the elite spot to dine, and, and that was where they had the set menu and the, and the wines to match. Were you doing other tastings as well? Like, were you... Um, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I did, you know, I, I continued to do the trade tastings and then of course we would taste things at windows and, and try different things. And, you know, a lot of sales people came through. I didn't see them as much because I worked in the evening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, they were there during the day, but you know, there were always wines available, uh, that, that, uh, the guys had been tasting and, you know, we got to try those and, um, uh, I, I, I also, um, I was part of a tasting group, um, fairly early on, uh, was introduced to that by a guy named David Silvera, who, uh, had worked with Becky Wasserman and he knew Al at Burgundy Wine Company. And I met him there at Burgundy Wine Company and he invited me to sit in with them. Uh, Daniel Jonas was part of the group, Scott Carney. Um, so yeah, I got, I got. You know, I got to know, I got to network fairly early on, which was really good and, and important, I think. And so eventually that led into applying at the Wine Spectator. How did that come about? I had been at Burgundy Wine Company for, uh, I guess, two, a little more than two years, almost two and a half years. And uh, I, I had left Windows already uh, and I was still modeling and acting. And I just saw my my wine resume growing more quickly than my acting resume and i was still very passionate about wine and really you know wanted to learn more and and i had um i had already um, become a part of the master of wine program uh in january of 93 so I, i i felt at that time that it was it was a good uh, it would be a good move to get into the wine business full time, find something that I could really sink my teeth into. So uh, it was around March or April. Uh, I, mean, I put my resume together and I, you know, kind of made a list of of goals that I wanted to achieve, and uh, and I started looking. And uh, I interviewed with a few people. Uh, I interviewed uh, at a restaurant, and then I, you know, I thought, well. Do I really want to get into the restaurant business again? I mean, I just, I had left Windows partly because, you know, I was working three jobs and uh, also, you know, I was working, basically Sunday was my only day off and, you know, you're working holidays, you're working weekends and and uh, my wife and I really wanted to take a vacation and and so I, 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 I quit a job so we could take a vacation, basically. Um, and then... Um, so I was looking and interviewed and, and, but I, you know, what I really wanted to do, uh, hadn't come up yet. And I remember at the time, uh, there was a, a position as a buyer for Astor Place, Astor Wines and Spirits. And, uh, and, uh, John Osborne, uh, got that job and I thought, wow, that would, be, that would have been a great job, you know, um, but you know, I kept I, I kept out there and I kept networking and and uh, then I got a call from uh, the wife of, of a former colleague at Windows on the World and she said, oh, you know, uh, Wine Spectator is looking for a tasting coordinator, 
you know, that, that might be an interesting job for you. And so I immediately called Jim Gordon, who was the managing editor at the time. And I had my resume, I had my cover letter, uh, and, uh, we chatted for about 10 minutes and I lived two blocks from the office. So I, I went by, I dropped it off and I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. So I called him back and I just wanted to make sure that he, he had received it and he had, and, and about three months went by and I thought, uh, you know, that's the end of that. And, uh, I saw in the magazine that they, that, that, the, the tasting coordinator name had changed and I figured, okay, they've, they've hired someone. And that's always a sinking feeling. Yeah. Like so, the job you want. And you're like, ah, oh. yeah. And I remember, you know, at the time Al Hodgkin was like, you know, there's probably like 400 people applying for this job. So, you know, if, if, if you don't get it, it's no big deal, you know, don't worry about it. But, um, that was nice that he was supportive that way as yeah. opposed to being like, you're leaving, <laughs> yeah. screw you. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, they were, they were always, uh, both Al and Jerry were, were very supportive and, uh, you know, as I said, it was, it was a great work environment. And, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I have them to thank a lot for, but, um, so finally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at Burgundy wine company one day and the phone rings and it's Jim Gordon and he's like, well, you know, we kind of put the hiring on the back burner because we were redesigning the magazine. And, but if you're still interested, you know, I'd like you to come in for an interview. So, uh, I said, yeah, well, sure. And I went in and, you know, we interviewed and, and, uh, I thought it went well. And then I know that, um, Al spent a long time on the phone with him subsequent to that. And, uh, um, you know, basically putting in a good word for me. And, uh, so, but a week later, uh, Jim calls me again. He said, I'd like you to come and meet Marvin. So I, I went and I interviewed with Marvin and the next day they offered me the job. What was the interview with Marvin Schenken like? Uh, it was pretty intimidating. Yeah. You know, I wanted to make a good impression. Um, I was nervous, but uh, at the same time, you know, I, I had nothing to lose. Um, oh, that's a good way of looking at it. And, you know, uh, you know I just, uh, I was honest and, you know, uh, basically stated my commitment to, to wine and to the wine business. And it was something that I had kind of dabbled in now for three years and I, and I was really ready to to switch careers. But I mean, Marvin Schenken strikes me a little bit of a ball buster. Did he say anything to you during the interview to bust your balls or it was just like, he was uh, like, no, nah, you're good. Or what happened? No, he, uh, not, not really. I mean, he asked me a lot of questions and, uh, but you know, at one point I remember, you know, he, he just kind of looked at me and he said, well, you know, we don't punch a clock around here. So how do I know that, you know, you're not going to get an offer to, to do a movie and, and that's it. You're gone. And, um, I said, well, no, I'm, I'm really committed to this. I'm really committed to wine and I'll be really committed to this job. And, uh, so I don't know if that was the turning point. Uh, you know, I, I, I heard later that he wasn't totally convinced on me, but, but the Jim in, in the end convinced me. Jim seems like a good guy to me. Like the, he's currently, Jim Gordon is a wine of vines now. He's, yeah. He seems like a really nice guy, stand up guy. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed working with Jim, and uh, and in, in fact, um, uh, when Jim left, he was covering Champagne for the magazine, which which I then began to cover. So also, uh, that so was I, your first beat, Champagne. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, no, it wasn't my first beat. Uh, uh, Alsace was my first beat, and uh, Alsace was my first beat. Uh, I, 
you know, it, 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 it's funny how it works, uh, how it worked for me anyway. Um, uh, you know, it was the trickle down theory at, at its best. And, uh, you know, Tom Matthews had been covering Alsace and he had some commitments and he wasn't able to, to continue covering Alsace. And uh, he asked me if I would be interested. And I said, sure, because I, I liked the wines very much. Um, and I had been to the region. And so I started covering Alsace. That was the first region. And, uh, and then um, one year, James Suckling came over. He was living in London at the time. And he came and we did a tasting of Austrian wines together. And... And then shortly after that, I took over Austrian wines. So I was covering Alsace and Austria. And, and what time period is that? Uh, Alsace was 1995, and uh, and Austria was probably late 96, but certainly by 97. Because that seems like big time uh, change periods for both of those regions. You yes. Have, you know, generational handover to Olivier Humbrecht. And, you mm -hmm. know, you have Dice coming on the scene. And then in Austria, you have the great 97 vintage. Yes. And a lot of producers kind of, you know, uh, I mean, the FX had changed the style by that time. But, you know, in terms of what he was doing in the 80s and then what, what was going on in the 90s. But there, there was it was hitting, you know, at that time. So that must have been interesting beats to cover. It was very interesting. Uh, certainly, I, I would say that, um, you know, uh, Alsace probably doesn't get the respect that it deserves. Uh, I think there are, there are wonderful wines. Uh, made there and and uh, very dedicated people, and I think if you look at uh, this this kind of a shift to organic and biodynamic uh, farming and and really commitment to the vineyards, uh, a lot of it started there, uh, Alsace, Loire, Burgundy, uh, and and it was these this younger generation of growers who were doing that, and uh, and plus you had you had this incredible uh, range of styles. In, in Alsace, you know, you had the, the very kind of austere, uh, bone dry style from Trimbach, and then you had these much more voluptuous wines from uh, Zindumbresh. But you know, but that changed from year to year depending on the on the vintage too. That some sometimes they were they were drier than others. So was that ever hard to communicate to people, like to get that across, like the range of styles? Or? Uh, I it, you know, it's it's difficult to get it across in a, in a few words. Um, but I think it also presents an opportunity to describe the range of styles and to to have people uh, experiment with them and try them. And uh, and I, I know um, a producer like Zinn Humbrecht has gone a long way too to uh, trying to educate their clients. You know, he has the the sweetness uh, index on the label. Which helps a lot, and and especially I have one of those on me now. I just wear it on my clothing, <laughs> you know, just to tell people wh where I'm at and my mood today. Is it, it's like a thermometer that you know? Yeah, it, it's it, like it, it's it, an index index number, and I just okay. keep it there. You know how yeah. how sweet am I feeling today? You right. know, it's, okay. it, I mean, it's helped in a lot of situations. I gotta be honest with you. You know, you chuckle now, but you know, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I, I apologize for interrupting. So I think um, uh, you know, and especially because their wines. Could change, you know, the 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 level of res residual sugar could change uh, from year to year. So I think that was that was very helpful, and and uh, and yeah, and Austria. I mean, you know, Austria was they were, uh, you know, they had at, around that time, and maybe just earlier, um, you know, they had kind of been, you know, discovered, and uh, 
you know, they'd had had the issues, um, and then you know the the growers got together, and and especially in the Bajau, and and you know they focused on quality. And uh, you mean they had the issues with diethylene glycol, yes, like that issue, okay. yes, where it almost destroyed the whole industry, exactly. and then they came back. Yeah. yeah. So you know, for 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 guys like Peekler and uh, and um, Prager and uh, uh, Hertzberger and Knoll, I mean. You know, the the only way to go was to focus on quality, and uh, but those wines weren't well known here in the U.S. And and then, you know, the uh, um, critics and sommeliers quickly picked up on them, and and they were you know they're terrific wines. So was so that, that fun for you to break the news on? You know, hey, this is happening. Yeah, you know? yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it was fun, and uh, it was great. I loved writing about them. Uh, I loved tasting them, and uh, and then. Um, you know, I started covering Germany um, about two years later. So all of a sudden, I had the, the Riesling triumvirate. You know, I had Alsace, Austria, and Germany, and and all very different. So um, so that was fascinating. And you also had a, a range of really interesting importers involved in that too. I mean, when you think of uh, Humbrecht was with uh, Kermit at that time, and then you had. Uh, you know, Vin Davino and Terry Thies doing some work. I mean, those are some charismatic people that you probably encountered now and again. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that helped a lot, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, the, I mean, Terry was a big champion of his growers, both in Germany and Austria, and then later in, uh, in Champagne. Um, uh, Kermit, of course, was one of the pioneers, especially for smaller estates and, uh, and you know, interesting estates. Um, you know, in addition to Zinhumbrecht, he had uh, Ostertag, uh, whose wines I uh, really like very much. Um, and I think, um, you know, another guy um, that that we need to mention is uh, Rudy Wiest, because Rudy is German, uh, German descent, and uh, and Rudy had been working with German wines for a long time, and uh, and and especially with the with VDP growers, and uh, he's he's done a lot of work in in this country. Uh, for German wines, a huge amount. Yeah, he's also funny. <laughs> so, so you, then you got champagne. I mean, what was the progression? Because now it's mostly Italy. But I mean, what? Where did your the route of wine take you as writing for the Spectator? Well, the uh, you know having the the Rieslings made a lot of sense, and 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 having lived in Germany, and that that was where I learned about Riesling. Uh, you know, that made a lot of sense, um, and then having the opportunity to do champagne. I mean, champagne, uh, well, I, I love champagne and I, I really enjoyed covering the region and tasting it. And, uh, and I enjoy drinking it today. Um, you know, champagne is, is, it, it's, it's kind of a tricky wine. Um, it's not easy to taste, um, you know, because the bubbles, uh, add another layer. It's it's sort of an extra dimension that 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 you have to get around. It was really um, hard for me in my early to yeah. evaluate it for quality. It took me a long time, like much longer than other categories. Yes, I, I think I think a lot of people find that, and uh, um, I was fortunate uh, when I was studying for the Master of Wine, uh, doing a lot of tasting, and and of course one of the one of the papers, one of the tastings for the exam is sparkling wine fortified wine um you know there's a red paper there's a white paper and then there's the sparkling fortified dessert wines so uh, i'd done a lot of tasting of champagne and really um, focusing on uh, how you can 
determine the difference between a sparkling wine from California, a champagne, a cava. Um, you know, uh, at that time, Prosecco wasn't as popular as it is now, but Franciacorta, for example. So, um, you know, just trying to identify things, uh, markers in the wines that, that would help you to identify it in a blind tasting. And so I think, you know, that's really where I, I got to learn how to taste champagne. And, uh, and you know, then it, it, it just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like a breakthrough. You know, all of a sudden, the bubbles aren't in the way. They're part of the wine. And you just, you understand it and you appreciate it. And the texture is another component, uh, and, as it is in any wine. But, but it's really uh, very much a part of the component of champagne. Because because uh, before I got to that breakthrough, I used to just leave it in the refrigerator, let it go flat for a couple of days, and then try and then to drink it. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> you know, it's my approach. It seemed easier. I'm just kidding. So let's talk a little bit because, I mean, you started the Spectator in '93, so I, I it's 20 years. I mean, what what is what has been the evolution in terms of the magazine from your from your perspective? I mean, here's a, a successful venture that you know. So many publications, you know, Newsweek, are not publishing anymore, right? Yes. So yet the Spectator seems to be doing well. I mean, what, what, I mean, there have been revolutions in wine, there have been revolutions in publishing, there have been electronic things, there have been, you know, a rise of different critics. The team has changed a little bit over the years in different ways. I mean, what, what did you see from your chair? Well, I, I think a couple of things are important. Uh, one is that, um, you know, we've always promoted the brand, and uh, uh, you know that's and 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 Marvin's vision of what Wine Spectator is and should be, and uh, and I think you know he's had great ideas over the years, and we've we've never stopped trying to improve on that. I think uh, the other thing that's important is that you know we we basically see our role as educators, and we want people to enjoy wine and, and have it as part of a healthy lifestyle, wine and food and travel. And, uh, and so we always, um, you know, we always try to think that someone is picking up the magazine for the first time and reading it for the first time. And, you know, if you, if you approach it that way, then you try to keep it, uh, not simple, but, but, uh, at least, uh, approachable for someone so we, you know, we try not to, to make it too scientific, too esoteric. Um, you know, we, we try to, to, to make it enjoyable for someone and explain it in a way that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to want to try wines or try a restaurant or try dishes, uh, recipes, uh, when they travel to, you know, stay at a certain hotel to, to follow a certain itinerary. So I think, you know, with, with that in mind, um, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to keep it fresh, uh, over the years. And, and the other important thing is that, uh, wine has always been our focus. Um, you know, when I, I remember, um, when we did the redesign, uh, in 1993, there was a lot of criticism at the time that, you know, we were, we weren't focused on wine anymore, that we were moving away from wine. Well, in 1993, I think we reviewed something like 4,600 wines. Uh, this year, we're going to review over 20,000. So, I, you know, our, our commitment to wine has always been there. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, put us in, in good stead. Um, 
there have certainly been challenges along the way, um, you know, uh, logistical challenges within the company. And then, of course, the advent of the internet. Um, so we created Wine Spectator Online. Uh, and, and now, you know, we're, we're getting involved in, uh, in the production of applications. So, you know, we've tried to stay relevant with, with all the other aspects of, of publishing. How do you think that the, the American consumer has changed maybe because of the spectator? I mean, what, does the conversation seem different to you when you go into a wine store than it was when you worked at Bring New Wine Company? Or do you think the consumer has, has shifted or become more knowledgeable or less knowledgeable or what's the difference today? Well, I definitely think the consumer is more knowledgeable today, but I, I, I just, I think also that more people are interested in wine. And, uh, you know, we're the, we're the number one wine consuming country in the world. And I like to think that Wine Spectator had a, a, had a large role to play in that. You did take over Italy. Uh, when did that happen and, and what was that like? It was, uh, it happened in, in, uh, uh, end of July, 2010. And, uh, it was, um, it was a big challenge for me. Uh, obviously I, I had, know, been tasting a lot of French wines over the years. I did cover um, Northeast Italy for a brief period in the in the mid to late. Oh, that's right. It was divided 90s. up. That, I remember we yeah. had that. That was the first conversation I ever had with you. Was yeah. I I, I covered that. Uh, I covered you know Veneto, Friuli, Venezia Giulia, Trentino Alto Adige. Uh, went to Vin Italy in 1998 and uh, wrote you know tasted the wines for a couple of years. Wrote a few tasting reports, and then. Um, I was, I've always enjoyed the wines of Piedmont, especially the, the Nebbiolo-based wines, so um, Barbaresco, Barolo. And I wanted to buy more of those uh, and really didn't feel like I knew enough and didn't have the confidence, you know, just to go out and buy things on my own. So I, I, I took a trip there one year on vacation in uh, 2007 and visited 10 wineries and you know when i was in restaurants in the area tried different wines and you know that was great and uh and you know i, I wrote a series of blogs on that trip and um uh, you know it was sort of you know my education in in the region and uh when i got back i started buying barolos and barbarescos and uh so now you know that that constitutes a, a a fair bit of my cellar and, um, but also, um, you know, I felt more comfortable with Piedmont when I started covering Italy because I had been there and I had tasted a number of the wines and visited the wineries. And I, so I kind of knew what, what people were doing and I'd seen the lay of the land. Tuscany was, uh, was more of a challenge. Um, it's, it's bigger for one. And, uh, and also I, I didn't have any kind of experience, you know, I, drunk the wines, you know, hundreds of them over the years, but it's different opening a bottle of Chianti Classico and, and enjoying it and covering the region where you really have to pay attention to what's going on and try to explain that to people, to your readers. So that sounds like a pretty humble thing to say. Like, you know, this was a little bit of a learning curve for me and a little difficult and I was in a very uh, big role and it was important that I get you know, this information communicated to this wide audience uh, well. So, I mean, in, in the intervening time, how have you approached it? Yeah, and it was also fascinating for me, Yeah, uh, you know, this to, to learn about it. And I, and I think, you know, you asked me about, uh, you know, how, how the magazine has changed. And I think, you know, um, every time 
that things feel like maybe you're getting into a bit of a groove or a rhythm or maybe a little complacent, then something new happens. Um, so that happened uh, in, in certainly in 2004 when I started covering Burgundy. But um, you know, I felt comfortable with Burgundy because I, I, I knew the wines and I had been there and I had, had ta- been tasting the wines for many years. Sure. I mean, Burgundy um, Wine Company was probably a really good basis for that. And then the same thing, um, you know, when I started covering Italy. So, you know, it's it's a uh, it's kind of like a like a spark, you know, and 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 it it motivates you to to learn about the area. And uh, and plus, I you know, I I I've been going there once a year for the last three years, and and that that's huge. I mean, I, I can't tell you how important it is when you actually go there, you visit people, you see what they're doing in the vineyards, you see what they're doing in the cellars, um, you know, you. You you walk the the land and uh, and, and you taste the, the wines with the food and so uh, you know that's a, that's a tremendous uh, advantage and a tremendous education. We hear a lot about political instability uh, in in Italy and you know some uh, economic conditions that don't seem great. Uh, what's been experienced when you go over there? I mean, uh, do you mostly deal with the wine? But then do you see things that strike you as, as interesting on those visits? So. I would say that, you know, the, the, the type of visits that I do, um, you don't really, you don't always see what's going on, you know, in the wider society. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a pretty intense schedule. So you're visiting as many people as you can in a day, um, you know, which in my case is maybe three maximum because Italians like to talk for a long time is what and, you're saying. And they have, <laughs> they, they, they do like to talk and they yeah, have some like wines to taste. Yeah. Too. Yeah. They like and, to sit down. And of course you can't get away without having lunch or dinner. Right. So, um, but, uh, no, I mean, we, we, we talk, I've talked about it. Uh, you know, I've discussed it with, um, you know, with growers and with proprietors and, and it's very difficult for them. Uh, and you know, that's why right now, um, you know, sales are very, very slow in Italy. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are, they're holding their own, but they're very interested in export markets because that's, you know, keeping them going right now. So with that being the case, I mean, how much do you feel like your role is as an advocate for the people making the wine and how much do you feel it's an advocate for the consumer buying the wine? I mean, where do you draw the line where you're like, you know, who, who am I really Am I am I really talking to the consumer for the benefit of the consumer, or am I really trying to advocate for the producer for the benefit of the producer? I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, where where do you personally? I mean, I obviously understand you have professional standards. You know, that, that's well known. But you know, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, you know this the economy is not doing well, and you want to help these people, but at the same time, you want you know be fair for the reader whose whose money is on the line. I and mean, how do you approach that? Our allegiance is to the reader. Um, you know that's that that's without question, uh, and and how we how we do that is when we when we taste wines from a region, we want to make sure that we cover the benchmark wines in a region, and we want to make sure that uh, we cover the wines that are widely available and and offer good value to our reader. Uh, in some cases, it means uh, that we don't taste wines from certain producers. Um, you know that's and. Partly because of our selection, but also partly because of the, the resources that we have. You know, we just we can't taste everything. 
do you ever have a conversation with the grower? Like, you know, if this were more widely available, we'd review it or something, but sure. it's not. So yeah. I'm sorry, you know? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if there are new, uh, new producers, we ask them, uh, you know, who your importer or importers are and what states you're distributed in. Um, you know, we want to make sure that uh, if, a, if a wine is coming through the door, that, um, you know, we can give it a fair chance. And, uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people who are handling that wine from, um, you know, the, the moment the sample arrives until the magazine is published. So, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of manpower and a lot, a lot of resources. And we want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're, we're using it efficiently. Do you ever find when on, you go to Italy that, uh, the way that the Italians engage with the wine is different than the way that the Americans engage with the wine, either with what they're apt to pair it with or when they'll drink it in the aging curve or that kind of thing, or, or uh, has that ever come up? I think probably the, the big difference is that um, Italians and I would say Europeans in general uh, tend to drink the wine more with meals. Um, you know, we, we do as well, but we also enjoy it on its own. Uh, you know, almost like as, as a cocktail, like you'll have it, you know, you'll have a glass of something before dinner, or you may meet some friends after work and have a glass of something. And, you know, I mean, Italians do that too, of course, but they might, might more likely have something else as, as an aperitif, uh, maybe a glass of sparkling wine, or maybe, you know, some kind of, uh, of, um, apero or, you know, uh, Campari and soda or something like that. But, um, but I think, you know, they, they, when you, when you talk to them, you know, they'll, they always say, you know, I want, I want my wines to go well with food. And, uh, and I think the other thing is that they, they tend to drink them younger, um, and not that they don't age some wines and enjoy those wines, you know, say when they're 20 or 25 years old, but, um, you know, they want something that they can have with dinner tonight. And, uh, and so they, you know, they try to make wines that are very drinkable. And what have you seen in terms of, uh, you know, you've been covering Italy for three years. What's changed in terms of, uh, trends or styles, or is there anything that you picked up and you said, well, that's, that's a little different than what I would have thought. I think that, um, a, a couple of things that I've seen, um, you know, is it, there's much more interest now in the indigenous grape varieties and I'm, I'm talking about Italy as a whole here, not just Tuscany or Piedmont, but uh, I think consumers here in the U.S. are much more open to different kind of, uh, kinds of grapes and, and different styles of wines. Uh, and, uh, and I think you're also seeing that reflected uh, to a certain extent in Tuscany. You know, they've done a lot of work on Sangiovese, on on uh, on the clones and on uh, spacing and density in the vineyards, and there's been a lot of replanting. And I think you know what we're seeing now are really um, better quality wines. And and I think we're we'll probably see uh, you know over over the in the next say ten or fifteen or twenty years more of a reliance on say Sangiovese than uh, some of the international varieties. I mean I think they'll always be there the Merlot, Cabernet, Syrah. Um, but I think, uh, I remember, um, you know, Piero Antonori in a, in a seminar that we did together at the wine experience a couple of years ago saying that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, he needed Cabernet right, to, to, to help prop up the Sangiovese. And, uh, but now they're, they're much more confident in the quality of the Sangiovese and, and, you know, it's because of all the work they've done. And, 
you know, does that become a fairly long article if you're talking about all the indigenous grape varieties of a region? I mean, does that become an issue with space just to be able to fit in? Because Italy has so many, you know, you're like, well, here's the 10 (laughs) Pelaverga and here's the Ruques that we did. And, you know, does that become quite a bit of of explaining? Yeah, I I think so. And, you know, I mean, uh, still when I, you know, if I talk about Piedmont, the focus is really on on Nebbiolo and and maybe to a lesser extent on... uh, you know, on Barbera, on Dolcetto, and, and a couple of the whites, but um, but I do try to taste those wines, and I like to meet with people, um, usually here in New York, because I, I I don't get as much of an opportunity when I'm on trips there, um, you know, to to see what they're doing and taste taste those kinds of wines. Um, you know, something like Pelaverga, it's it's just it's so scarce. Uh, you know, a couple of producers that are doing it. Um, you know, it's interesting when you have them, but it's it's something that you might find here in New York, but you're not likely to find too many other places across the country. Is that an issue when you write an article? Like, do you think to yourself, you know, this magazine is published for the whole country, and am I going to alienate a lot of people who are going to read this paragraph and not be able to find these wines? Like, is that something that you, you consider? Yeah, we have to remember that, uh, you know, that it's, it's, it's a very different wine market here in New York. Um, you know, what you're finding in retail shops and what you're finding in restaurants compared to, um, you know, somewhere in Idaho or, or Ohio or Florida. Um, but, uh, and, and Ontario, yeah. and definitely <laughs> Ontario. And we get, uh, we, we have a lot of readers in Canada. Yeah, I and bet. They're, they're always, <laughs> we, you know, that we, we get a lot of letters, you know, why don't we, why we don't cover more Canadian wines and, and, you know, we try to, we try to do it, but they're just not available here. A lot of them aren't available here. Um, but definitely, you know, I would say one of the biggest complaints we hear from readers is that they can't find wines, you know, and some of them are made in tiny quantities. Um, and that's, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. And, uh, so, and that's, that's again, why we try to focus as much on wines that are widely available, um, that are good quality, uh, as those benchmark wines of a region. So, you know, now you've taken over uh, Italy. It's been three years. Do you see um, a change from the previous reportage of Italy from the spectator these days? And if so, is that because of uh, your own inclinations or is that because the producers have changed a little bit? Or maybe there is no change from, you know, maybe it's the continuity of, of coverage. But what, what do you see as your, as, as your position? I think everybody's palate is different. And I think my palate is different. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, my, my, uh, take on the wines will be slightly different than, uh, than, than what we had previously. Um, and I think, you know, I also want to point out that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, kind of overseeing our Italian coverage and, but I'm really focusing on Piedmont and Tuscany and that two of my colleagues are also tasting wines from the country. So Allison Napius is tasting the wines of the Northeast and uh, also the, the sparkling wines. And uh, Nathan Wesley is tasting everything pretty much south of, of Tuscany. Um, so I think they're encountering more of the indigenous varieties than I am. Um, you know, I, I get a few, I get a few of those definitely. Well, you know, if you look at the whites, certainly from Piedmont, you know, uh, Arneas, uh, Gavi, our Cortese and, and Gavi, and uh, and then of course um, uh, Vernaccia and Vermentino in uh, in Tuscany, um, but you know they they've got uh, you know they've got way more uh, indigenous grapes in in their areas than I do, uh, 
uh, you know, Tuscany, it's pretty much Sangiovese. Uh, and, and okay, then, you know, there's some, some of the international varieties too. Um, and then, you know, you've got the, 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 the big ones in Piedmont, Nebbiolo, Barbera, Dolcetto. Um, but, you know, when you get into the South, uh, I mean, you know, if you look at, and, and, and I think those are some of the areas, um, you know, in, in Sicily, in Puglia, Campania, where, um, you know, we, we see a lot of uh, very interesting uh, white and red wines, um, you know, something like uh, Etna, where you have uh, Norello Mascalese and Norello Capuccio. And I mean, you know, if you, if you just uh, kind of skim through Jancis Robinson's new book on, uh, on grapes, uh, you know, <laughs> um, Italy has, you know, by far uh, more than in anybody else, you know, I mean, almost twice as much as uh, twice as many as France. Uh, that's you know the closest competitor. And it, has it gotten to the point where Italy uh, really uh, Italian coverage really has to include not you know these other areas because it seemed like they would get less coverage in the past you know maybe ten years ago. But it seems like now there there are people focused in on them. Is it is it come to the point where these wines really are you know receive national attention? Yeah, I'm, I you know national attention. I'm not sure because as as we. Uh, you know, as we spoke, um, a lot of them are made in very small quantities. But I think uh, a country that's as rich and diverse in in uh, grape varieties and and you know soil types and regions as Italy, um, you know, really merits that 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 exposure. And and uh, and I think you know where they where they are available, people are interested. And so let's talk a little bit about the evolution of of the writer. You know, so it used to be that the Spectator was a, a fairly small newsletter. Then it grew quite a bit. Uh, you know, we were looking at the 1998 uh, issue the other day. It's, it's 400 pages. Now there's been a migration to content online. When you approach a blog post versus a, a written article for the for the publication, are those two different voices, or how do you how do you distinguish for your own sense of how you're going to write the piece? Yeah, I would say that the big difference between a blog and uh, and a a piece for the magazine, unless it's a column, uh, you know, a blog is, is more an opinion, um, you know, or, or an experience that you've had. Uh, it's, it's, it's more personal. So I think there's, there's more of a personal voice there. Um, you know, and I, and I would say some articles for the magazine, like a, a profile or a cover story on a region would, would have a, a different feel than a tasting report. You know, which a, a tasting report basically you're you're giving people buying advice. You're talking about vintages. Um, you know, whereas a profile, you're really trying to get into uh, the personality of a person and their relationship, say to you know their their company, their 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 uh, winery, their vineyards, uh, their region, etc. Does that give you a little bit more scope than maybe was around before? Like to be a little bit more personal with the voice than, you know, then because you started in 93, there was no blog. So now do you get to explore different faucets of your, of your kind of writer voice? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, you know, we've always had that with the columns. Uh, I don't write columns that often um, here and there, but uh, you know, if you, if you go back even preceding my uh, tenure at the magazine um, you know, we've had columns by Matt Kramer, by Jim Lobby, uh, so, you know, those, those kinds of, of that kind of writing and those kinds of voices have, have always been there. Um, uh, but it's, it's, you know, the blogs 
the the um, you know the internet has given us um, you know a, a greater uh, a, a greater voice, so to speak. Um, you know because uh, you know the content is finite in the magazine, and and you know we have we can do more features, we can do blogs, etc. Online. Bruce, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Levy. It was a pleasure being here. Bruce Anderson of The Wine Spectator. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.